A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. John Adams said that because power corrupts, society's demands for moral authority and character increase as the importance of the position increases. Every headline in the past week has us thinking about abuse of power and the moral authority required to stand up to that abuse. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today we're going to cover a few items of the news in the first segment and then talk about moral authority in both of our parties in the main segment. And of course, at the end of the show, we'll talk about what's on our minds outside politics. If you could rate and review Pantsuit Politics and check out our new podcast, The Nuanced Life, we would be greatly appreciative. Also, we have a special bonus episode for patrons of our show. For any new listeners, you can go to patreon.com for slash Pantsuit Politics and become a monthly supporter of the work we do here at Pantsuit Politics. And depending on what level of support you sign up for, you get special bonus content. And so we will have a special live 
video of the State of the Union and our thoughts on it for our patrons coming up um, today, Tuesday, tonight, when this episode comes out. So if you want that special bonus content, head over to patreon.com forward slash politics. We want to extend our thoughts to the people of Kabul, Afghanistan, before we dive into the news this week. The Taliban has claimed responsibility for a just very deadly weekend. On Saturday, six armed militants stormed the Intercontinental Hotel, killing about 22 people, including some Americans and other foreign citizens. There were flight attendants and pilots there. I'm saying about 22 people because there's been some uncertainty about those casualties and about what the Afghan government is disclosing, and journalists are still not allowed into the hotel. And then after that attack on the hotel, militants drove an ambulance that was marked as an ambulance filled with explosives into crowded streets, and about 95 people were killed, 158 have been reported injured. This just continues what has been an absolutely depressingly unstoppable wave of violence in this country. According to the New York Times, over the first nine months of 2017, 10 civilians a day died in Afghanistan. And there was an anecdote in the New York Times story that I read about a maternity hospital near the explosion that really brought home for me what people are living with. One of the uh, nurses said that they kind of briefly interrupted their work. People jumped out of their beds, but then they just kept doing what they do. One of the midwives said, it has become normal in Afghanistan. Every day we hear these kinds of sounds. And there's the story of a mother who couldn't breastfeed her baby afterward because she went into shock after the attack. She just cried and, and wouldn't speak. And they're having a hard time convincing her that, that it's okay and that she can take care of her infant child. So it's awful. The terrorists responsible for these attacks are believed to be operating out of Pakistan. The Trump administration recently increased pressure on Pakistan and cut off security aid to try to weaken the country in its conflict with Afghanistan. But there are people in the region who are worried that that decision is sort of adding fuel to the fire and prompting an uptick in violence. It's a horrific circumstance. I read things like this and think about how fortunate I am by just the sheer virtue of not the sheer virtue, the sheer luck of birth to be living in a country as safe as the United States. And um, I just extend my thoughts and prayers to those people. I, I hate that they're enduring this. It seems to me from the reporting that I've read that the ISIS and Al-Qaeda are engaged in some sort of battle of who can have the most impact, of who can have the worst attacks, who can garner the most attention which is the worst possible scenario for the people of Afghanistan. We had dinner on Saturday night um, with some dear friends of ours, both who are immigrants from Pakistan, and hearing their perspective on um, the terrorist attack, the impact of the this security aid deal um, with the United States on the people of their country was really, really interesting. Clearly, they don't see... This as just the generosity of the United States. The United States gets a lot from these from this aid package that they set up with um, Pakistan after two thousand after nine eleven, and it was just um, interesting. And I don't think there's any easy answers, but I think the cost, both in human lives and economic impact, and you know, government breakdown 
for our involvement in the region on both the people of Afghanistan and the people of Pakistan are just heartbreaking and terrible and playing sticks and carrots with people in such a difficult region of the world is not appealing to me um, at all and does nothing to acknowledge the complexity of the situation and puts and paints us as so selfish and one-sided and it's just very disconcerting. I think that if I were part of a new administration, one of the first things that I would want to do is assemble a bipartisan, multi-generational group of people to get together and talk about the Middle East over a, a period of days and weeks and just think through, is there a different way? Because we, I feel like we've been doing versions of the same thing there for generations. I think pulling out completely is not the answer. But I, I somehow we have to find a new way of thinking about this. I mean, I was literally watching Victoria, the PBS show about Queen Victoria from the 18 freaking hundreds. And you know what they had an episode about? British soldiers being uh, defeated in Afghanistan. Victoria. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. What else we need to learn, you know, how how deeply we need to internalize that we are doing the same things and accepting and expecting different results. Uh, my friends were it was really interesting to talk to them and they, they were just talking about in Afghanistan in particular how when the Russians were defeated, they just left everything, tanks, guns, all these instruments of warfare that then the. Taliban was able to take and use. And it's not like this, the Russians rolling through were the first country to roll through this region. I mean, again, the British back in Queen Victoria's day, the French, the Russians, now us. And we all keep doing it and expecting different results. And meanwhile, the people of the region suffer. There are easy answers. I was talking to a friend of mine who has served in the Middle East a couple of times about the equipment issue that you just mentioned. You know, we have this equipment, we use it while we're over there. The The cost of bringing it back to the United States is enormous and seems like not a good use of taxpayer dollars. The cost of leaving it there is enormous. What do you do? And what do you do about the reliance on the United States for security in some regions, but the very detrimental effect of those regions becoming reliant on the United States, our inability to keep those areas secure, even when we're there, the cost of American lives. I'm not saying any of this is easy, and I really don't blame any decision makers for the decisions they've made in the region, because I think it is so hopelessly complex in some ways. I do think, again, my approach would be can we get together a group of people who represent a broad spectrum of ideologies and parties and ages and talk about what are our responsibilities and rights and values with respect to this region and how could we more effectively create a policy that lives out those values? Well, speaking of our values, President Donald Trump has made an interesting decision with regards to renewable energy. The, so the president imposed 30 percent tariffs on solar panels made outside the United States. 
This is from Bloomberg, which I thought was an interesting and very candid assessment. It's hard to tell why he's doing this. It could be a protectionist move, or it could be designed to hurt renewable energy and protect the dying coal industry. The article that I read from Bloomberg points out that this isn't exactly new. President Obama hit China with even higher tariffs because China was flooding the market with cheap solar panels that had been subsidized by the Chinese government. And that's a move that China makes in all kinds of industries with all kinds of products. So the difference between the Obama era policy and President Trump's policy is that Trump is applying those tariffs to to all panels manufactured overseas. The article also points out, though, that this this sounds like, oh, okay, good. So American solar panel manufacturers are just going to flourish, right? The problem is that's not how the world works anymore. And a lot of U.S. solar manufacturers are foreign-owned. Some Some have majority shareholders in China. So increased profits for some of these American manufacturers will go to companies that are overseas. It also will probably lower the price of electricity in the United States, which could slow the process of solar energy becoming a more viable form of energy on a broad scale. But this article points out that technology is more important than policy in this arena because solar energy is at such a fast pace becoming so inexpensive and such a good way to power equipment that probably this is a bump in the road, but we're still going to see exponential growth in this industry. I don't know if that's correct or not, but I thought it was an important perspective because our tendency tends to just be hooray or, oh my God, the world is falling apart about everything. I thought this was kind of a nice way to say, this is a terrible decision. Also, there are lots of ways to overcome it. I recently read that Donald Trump has really given his cabinet members free reign to reshape the federal government. I wonder how much of this was driven by a cabinet member and Mm -hmm. not by him. I also wonder, if I'm being honest, how much of this is just driven by someone personally whose industry would benefit from this sort of tariff who donated to Donald Trump's campaign. I'm just going to be honest. I think this is what that smells like to me. And it just had the added bonus of sort of trying to undo some of the the solar energy support that Obama did, which is always like an added bonus for him to try to undo anything Obama did. That's what that seems like to me, that this is this is a short-sighted um, focus on either benefiting a donor or a cabinet member and is not indicative of any sort of long-term strategy, which I don't think they have. Well, you know the phrase personnel is policy. I think that's true. And I think that's playing out in the Trump administration in big ways. I also think it's true that priorities are policy. Mm-hmm. So like when I talk to people about Jeff Sessions and the marijuana decision, for example, I'll hear a lot of, okay, it's it's stupid. I wish that he weren't doing this. But laws shouldn't be enforced selectively and Congress really should fix this conflict. And so maybe that's a good thing. Okay, fine. Why is it being made a priority, though? That's mm-hmm. the question to me. When the Justice Department has so much to do, we're going to talk more about that in a second, Why is marijuana rising to the top of the list? And that leads to the kind of questions that you're asking, Sarah. Who donated money? Who's interested in this? Whose pet project is at work here? And I feel the same way about the solar decision. With everything else going on, why this? Why did Mm -hmm. this float to the top? Exactly. Exactly. 
Well, we have been having what we've started referring to as a Me Too moment, not to be uh, cute or trivial about that in any way. But we think it is important to continue the discussion of the avalanche of information that's coming out about abusive power around sexuality. So we have two aspects of that that we wanted to talk about today, starting with Hear Her Harvard. I know that you've been reading about this, Sarah, and had some thoughts. I think it's really interesting, and I think it is an illustration in a very different way of how complex these issues are. So starting with the Harvard's class of 2021, undergraduate members of unrecognized single-gender social organizations, including sororities, will be banned from holding athletic team captaincies in leadership positions in all recognized students' groups. This will They will also be ineligible for college endorsements of top fellowships like Rhodes and Marshall Scholarships. So they did this under the recommendations of groups, including feminist groups, on how to reduce sexual assault on, on their college campus. And so we all know that Harvard has these predominantly male for a long, long period of time, like finals clubs. And then, of course, you have um, Greek clubs. And so I understand the motivation to say these single gendered situations lead to abuses they lead to imbalances of power. I guess my problem with it, and obviously other people's problems because the hashtag hear her Harvard has sprung up with um, the sororities in particular refusing to follow the recommendations, um, continuing to do single gender recruitment. And they've had protests and alumni members of all these sororities support them. I, I guess my issue with it is I understand the concerns, but I think it is maybe not the smartest approach to apply these rules equally to female and male organizations. That, to me, is where I'm confused at the application of these recommendations. Like, I'm not saying you you would go, oh, we're going to do with fraternities, but sororities can say that, stay. That's not what I mean. But there has to be a smarter way to deal with these imbalances without pretending that all single-gendered clubs are of equal blame, I guess, in these scenarios. I think that's really what puts this into the Me Too moment, because this decision was made at Harvard in 2016, before any of the current wave started. And it has been objectionable and protested since then. A number of national sororities have come out in support of the chapters at Harvard who are going to continue to do single gender recruitment. But right now you have a lot of Harvard women standing up and saying, why are you punishing women Mm -hmm. for the sins of men, essentially? And I also think that combating sexual assault, if if what we decide is that you can't have any male-only organizations, that doesn't seem like where we want to be as a society either. Mm-hmm. I, I understand that fraternities are responsible for a lot of um, nonsense in the world and <laughs> and beyond nonsense, right? Fraternity, some very dark things happen to both men and women as a result of fraternities. Also, some very wonderful things happen for both men and women as a result of of fraternities. And this policy, to me, paints with an awfully broad brush. I think it's the kind of thing that creates a ton of backlash culturally. You know, this is like Mm -hmm. such great fodder for Fox News and people who love to stir up controversy about the snowflake kids on college campuses. Why feed into that? To me, if you're trying to combat sexual assault, do it. Do that. Don't say you can't have any organizations that are single gendered. I don't get the relationship between those things. I guess for me, 
Look, I, Beth and I were both members of a sorority. I still consider myself a member of a sorority. My husband was in a fraternity. And I am not saying that those environments are not a petri dish for certain gender dynamics and gendered problems. But if you have something growing in a Petri dish, you don't blame the Petri dish. You know what I mean? Like, absolutely. That's the issue. It, it thrives in that environment because of what we all walk in to that environment carrying. Mm -hmm. But that it could also, I have also seen positivity thrive in that environment. I think you cannot argue that that female empowerment doesn't thrive in a single gendered organization. I think that was definitely my experience inside our sorority at Transylvania. I've often said I started a, the first feminist organization at Transy, and it was my sorority sisters that showed up at every single meeting for the first few months. So, you know, I, like I said, I think that sort of blaming this, and I don't, I hope, I should hope that this is not the only approach Harvard is taking to reducing sexual assault, and I don't believe they are, but. I think that they could do this in a smarter way than to eliminate, you know, an environment when what that environment empowers is really the problem. The truth is organizations like this need to exist because it creates so many leadership opportunities. Mm -hmm. You start eliminating, especially single gendered leadership opportunities for women, and you're cutting away at the opportunities they have in general. That's so true. I never would have gotten the types of experiences that I received in a sorority in a mixed gender organization. Never. I never would have been elected to the positions that I held. I never would have been on the committees that I was on. I never would have had kind of the, the moments when I had to step up and make a decision or say something in front of a huge group of people in a mixed gender organization. And so when you're taking those opportunities away, you're taking them away disproportionately from women. And I think that's part of the point here. But men need those opportunities too. If you look at America today in 2018, I don't think anyone should be saying, we just have too many people with leadership experience, mm. you know, and college is a really important place where that happens. I feel the same way about scouting. You know, I think the yeah. boys, boys and Girl Scouts are working through some difficult issues on this, but I want to make sure that in our um, finally, you know, too late motivation to address some complexities and some abuses that we don't end up saying, well, we can't trust anybody, so let's just take away all the opportunities for bad things to happen. That's right. not the way to go about this. Right. We also wanted to speak briefly to Judge Aquilina's sentencing of Larry Nasser. He received 175 years in prison after seven days of hearings in which 156 women made victim impact statements. Look, I went to law school, and I understand logically that Judge Aquilina can't be in charge of, for example, all civil suits, and more importantly, what I should hope to be would would be in um, forthcoming criminal charges against those who knew about Larry Nasser and did nothing. Like, I get that she can't. I just wish that she could. I thought it was interesting that there were so many immediate reactions and think pieces on whether she crossed a line here in using the courtroom this way. Oh, interesting is a nice word for that. Well, there were, I mean, some of that came from women too. I so know. I don't want to just, um, which, uh, 
Look, there's no easy way to talk about any of this. I thought the Saturday, the only like interesting idea on this week's Saturday Night Live, I thought was the Aziz Ansari dinner. Did you see that, Sarah? No, what was it? Okay. So it was a really bad episode of Saturday Night Live. Just save yourself the hour. And this skit wasn't particularly funny, but it was good social commentary. So it was a group of three couples at a dinner and a woman at the table says, so I just wondered if you guys saw that opinion piece on, no, I shouldn't say it. And they're all like, say it, what, what? And she finally goes, Aziz Ansari. And like every person's head about explodes, you know, like they do these individual cuts to each person reacting to it. And then they all try to talk about it and they keep saying, I thought, no, 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 you go pass. I can't. (laughs) That's kind of how it went. And it was good because that's, that's how all of this is right now. Right. But here's what I want to say about Judge Aquilina. I understand feeling that this was a lot. It was a lot. Seven days of victim impact statements from 156 people in a case where he pled guilty is a lot to come into the courtroom. And Judge Aquilina said and did a lot from the bench. And I understand being uncomfortable with some of her comments about how she wishes she could have done to him what he did to others. That is not my personal style. Those are not things that I would have said on the bench in this situation. However, if you think that we're going to have this kind of cultural tide without it creeping into all of our institutions, you are misunderstanding what's happening here. And You also misunderstand, I think, the fact that Judge Aquilina listened to all 156 people over all seven days. So we're all reacting to her statements based on the news clips that we've watched Mm -hmm. or the portions of the testimony that we've seen. She read things in the record that didn't come across in the news coverage, and she sat through every second of this. And she is a human being. And she has a forum and judges across this country use their forums in ways that if they were in the headlines, we might not feel great about all the time. We might feel our overkill. We certainly should have more information about some of that when it comes to race relations in this country. So the fact that this woman judge set through every single bit of this, took all of it to heart, experienced live and in person how victims who were very, very young when these things happened to them reacted and experienced live and in person how little responsibility this defendant was taking for his own actions, she is allowed to have a reaction. And I think her reaction was a very empowering Thing for the victims, I think she did the best that she could to effectuate justice within the context that she had in front of her. I think what bothers me is the subtext of this criticism of her is, you know, judges, a.k.a. male judges, because that's mostly what we see, are supposed to not be emotional and are supposed to be neutral and are supposed to be all these things, logical what men are, what men are, right? Logical, cool-headed, blah, blah, blah. First of all, I don't believe that. I think that every human being, regardless of their gender, are emotional and respond emotionally. And we can use that to dress it up and call it logic if we would like. But usually it is emotion. And so to pretend that judges are usually 
um, just so cool headed and not responding emotionally. They might their emotions might look different to you because of our gender perspective, but they are still there. And if we want to allow space in our institutions for a more gender diverse perspective, then sometimes when you've been told your whole life that judges look one way, they might look somewhere some way different. And that might make us all uncomfortable. And I'm here for it. That's how I feel about Judge Aquilina. I tweeted that if her name had been like Rick Rogers, everyone would be saying she needed to be president in 2020 and was here to save us. Because I do think that that's how the reaction would have gone. So true. And I I applaud her for giving the women space to talk about this. I think it was necessary at this moment in time. Again, are there going to be spaces that feel like overkill to some of us? Yeah, there are. That's going to be part of this process. And we're just going to have to navigate it the best we can. But I do not think the answer is to find more sympathy for a person who who did this kind of abuse than we find for the judge who is putting his abuse in very plain terms for the world to see. Mm-hmm. So over the weekend, there were lots and lots of Russian protest um, about the upcoming presidential election. Um, election might be generous. Uh, for this March 18th, they were calling the the protests were calling for a boycott because it's not really an election. It's more like a referendum on Putin. And people are increasingly upset. I think there's a lot of um, discontent, particularly among well-educated um, youth in the sort of major metro areas. There's an opposition leader, Alexa Navalny, who was arrested at one of the protests. He's since been released, but he's been very prominent um, as a critic and speaking out against the corruption. So there were some 256 protests across the country, um, lots of arrests. Um, I don't know what sort of impact this will have on Putin. It seems like an economic downturn or um, economic problems would feed this more than almost anything else. It should be interesting to watch um, and to see how it continues and to see if it has um, any impact on the election on March 18th. Isn't it interesting that economic issues drive these discussions more than anything else? I mean, when you think about everything that's happened in Russia and the way that that Vladimir Putin has used his position of power in that country. The fact that you still are kind of waiting to see what the economy does to see how people react. And that kind of blows me away. And then it doesn't because that's what we do in the United States too. Yeah. One of my favorite statistics I always think about is it was like, I don't even think it was three months. I think it was five weeks after nine 11, the number one concern on America, uh, Americans minds was the economy. So, yeah, it's, it's, I think the economy just has its limits and we haven't gotten our minds around that yet, right? The economy has its limits in in terms of how rapidly it can grow, how much it can grow, what it can provide for us. It's like we've never come to understand as voters the point of diminishing returns. Mm. You know, that idea that there's a there's a level of economic gain after which you don't achieve any more happiness. I feel like we need to start internalizing that in a very civic way. Well, and I also think we use the word economy and economic. And really what that means is our, I mean, you could call it survival. You could call it, you could use different words to describe that people are really concerned about themselves. We really, yeah. it's, it's the spotlight effect. We want to know how this is going to affect us. That's why there are so, certain issues that are so hard to get movement on because people really just want to 
provide for their families and know that they are going to be protected and safe. And so, um, you know, I think that is part of it. And also we live in a capitalistic culture that says that that is the most important concern, that the market, the market, I was in that Krista Tippett interview I was listening to on Ezra Klein that I talked about last week. She talks about like, she said, this is hard for me to say as a Cold War warrior, but we, the market is our God. The market is our values. The market is the fixer of all problems. That's what we've told ourselves. That's what we've put forth as the number one solution. And so it's, it's sort of not surprising that that's what people default to. If people just wanted to worry about their survival and security and taking care of our families, that would be one thing. But I think that what we have done is taken that to a place where it always means more. So it's not just that I'm safe and secure. I'm going to be able to have a nice life. Maybe I can retire comfortably someday. It's we we always need to be accumulating more, mm-hmm. right? That's what I mean by we haven't gotten to that point of diminishing returns. We don't understand that like after a certain point, should we not be able to care about the integrity of our institutions? Mm-hmm. You know, should we not be able to care about some of the norms that we want to preserve? Should we not be able to care about balancing power among the different branches of governments? I've switched over to the United States now, clearly, instead of in Russia. But I mean, I think as you know, I don't know enough about Russia's economy and what individual Russian citizens are enduring every day to know what's going to be on their minds. But I would think that had we a president who was imprisoning political enemies, surely we could get past as individual voters our own 401ks to give that some consideration. But, but we have such a different hi- yeah, we have such a different history than the Russian people. We do. You know we that do. when you say 401ks, they're not thinking 401ks, they're thinking about the days when people were starving. You know, right. like the fear is so strong there and that's I listened to an amazing podcast that I cannot remember on what it was where they interviewed people in Russia and who who really supported Putin and why. And they were basically like, it was just so terrible before he came. He did such a good job because it was awful before he came. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of it. But I think to your point about our concerns, it reminds me of an exchange that Jay-Z had with President Trump or President Trump had with Jay-Z maybe. He basically tweeted, I think Jay-Z said some critical things about President Trump, not surprising. And President Trump was like, black unemployment is the lowest ever. And I thought um, Jay-Z's response, he went on the Van Jones show and was like, but that money is not the most important thing. The idea that, like, just because there's a little more money in our pockets, we can't criticize or call out or have concerns about anything else is so short-sighted. So I don't think we should expect thought leadership on broader concerns beyond our po- own pocketbooks and the economy coming from our president. That's for sure. Well, we always take a second to compliment a member of the other party from ours before we move on to our main segment. And I think this discussion about Russia is a great one to segue into moral authority. But before that, Sarah, who would you like to compliment this week? So I am complimenting Representative Will Hurd, who's a Republican from Texas. He has the district with the um, most border mileage, like the most mileage in his district along the southern border. And he has come together with Representative Pete Aguilar, a Democrat from California, with a um, bipartisan bill to protect DREAMers as well as adding resources for border security, which I think is really great, particularly coming from the House, because I just think we need to be real about this. The House of Representatives is the weakest link, perhaps weaker than Donald Trump on this entire immigration deal. Like, no matter what wonderful compromise the Senate comes up with, the unfortunate reality is that it's dead on arrival in the House of Representatives. So seeing members of the House of Representatives attempt to put together a deal, attempt to move this the 
the discussion forward is encur- is very, very encouraging. I wanted to compliment a couple of Democratic representatives in the state of Arizona who were harassed by protesters in front of the Capitol. These protesters were there. Um, they were identified in the article I read as Trump supporters, which I thought was – I don't know if that's true or if it was just intended to be provocative. But they were there about immigration issues, and they stopped – People on the way into the Capitol who did not look like they belonged there in the eyes of these protesters. It's just one of the ugliest things I've read in a long time. And one of the representatives was asked if he was in the country illegally. Representative Eric Deshini, who is Navajo, responded, I'm indigenous to these lands. My ancestors fought and died on these lands. Don't ask me that question. And I thought that was a really important response and a really beautiful way to handle that. Also, Representative Cesar Chavez, who was brought to the U.S. from Mexico as a child, was asked if he was illegal. The protester said to him something like, once illegal, always illegal. And Chavez said to the Arizona paper that asked him about this, I took no offense, no attention. It was just simply one of those things where you're going to have a stance and I'm going to have a stance and we're never going to agree on these things. It just made me think about what especially um, individuals from Hispanic backgrounds, Native American backgrounds endure sometimes in order to serve the public. And I really appreciate uh, these individuals and the way they handled something. And I'm so sorry that they have to tolerate this kind of ugliness in our country. So up next, we're going to talk about moral authority within each of our parties. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. 
Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. So today we wanted to talk about moral authority. And the reason this is something I've been thinking a lot about is, I'm just going to be honest, I'm a little frustrated with how little attention this whole Donald Trump paid a porn star not to talk about the affair they had. And I was discussing this with my husband, and my husband said, we just sacrificed so much with our support of Bill Clinton. And then right on the heels of that conversation was the Pretty hilarious, I thought. I did watch this part of Saturday Night Live. Will Farrell's sketch in which he reprised his role of George W. Bush, which we are going to share a little bit of audio from right now. I don't know. But the point is, I'm suddenly popular AF. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people are saying, man, I wish George W. Bush was still our president right about now. So I just wanted to address my fellow Americans tonight and remind you guys that I was really bad. (laughs) Like, like historically not good. (laughs) So I get why you don't like this current guy. Heck, I I voted for Jill Stein all the way. (laughs) But, But please do not look back at my presidency and think, this is how we do it. So this idea that... Both parties in the past have had presidents that made grave mistakes in different moral arenas, and we can argue about the impact of those moral arenas. But even if you want to blow off Bill Clinton's um, sort of lack of moral authority with regards to his personal conduct, I think there are other purely policy areas, such as the crime bill, such as welfare reform, in which we could we could talk about this as well. And sort of what is lost when we decide that the only thing that matters is supporting our party's president, even years after they've left office. And so I just thought that that was an interesting thing to think about as we deal with definite questions of moral authority coming from the Trump's presidency and what seems to be an even more intense doubling down on that support. 
Yeah, I think it's an interesting question, especially because as I've been thinking about George W. Bush and Bill Clinton, particularly in the research that we've been doing for our book, I've been wondering what is the relationship between grace and moral authority? Because in a lot of ways, moral authority is lost in retrospect. The crime bill and welfare reform are good examples of that. To some extent, some of George W. Bush's actions with regard to foreign policy are contextual as well. We understood them differently in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 than we understand them today. We understand welfare reform today differently than we understood it at the time. In some ways, I'm going to start with welfare reform particularly, took the shape it took because it was bipartisan. It bore Mm -hmm. all of the bruises of going through a brutal bipartisan process, the kind of process that we lament legislation not going through today. So in some ways, I think we have to be careful in this discussion of moral authority not to lose sight of the fact that we are going to have a different perspective on things. You know, we're we're not meant to make decisions that always withstand the test of time because it is a difficult job being president and what you touch as a president and, and even as Congress people should evolve over time. Our understanding should evolve. The circumstances will change. We're not meant to legislate and have that legislation be perfect law for the next hundred years. So I don't know. I think there's a tough balancing act to be had when you think about how you behaved at one point in time and then how you see that behavior through the lens of more experience. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I struggle with, for example, Bill Clinton. I read recently a quote from a political operative that said that the the seed of our current toxic environment in Washington, D.C. was planted during the Clinton presidency. And I can't understand the vitriol um, before, even before he had made some serious misjudgments. Well, I don't know. He was making serious misjudgments in Arkansas, too. But there seemed to just be this vicious anger among the right in reacting to him, you know, leading up to the contract with America. I don't really know where that came from. I think it's a generational thing, maybe. I'm not sure. A generation I'm not a member of, obviously. But what I see when I look back at the presidencies of Bill Clinton and George W. Bush is very flawed men whose, you know, it felt like with in particular, Bill Clinton, there was this sort of sort of forced loyalty. And then also with George Bush, like you had to stay, you have to stay supportive. You have to support the president, you have to support the agenda, because what else are we going to get accomplished anyway? And I sort of get that. But the blowback is so much worse. And I particularly see this with, I think, George W. Bush. It's like you tell people on the right, and I think they tell themselves even this is our guy. This is our guy. And then they look around and they think, I didn't get anything I wanted. And now I'm really mad. And now I'm really pissed that I got put in this situation in which I felt like I needed to support this guy. I didn't get anything I wanted. I had to sort of agree to things I didn't want to agree with. And now I'm just really, really mad. I guess I don't see that as much um, with the Clintons, although, I mean, I guess you did. You saw so much anger from the Bernie Sanders side of the party that said, like, why are we signing on for this again? What, you know, 
this loyalty has created um, an absence of advocacy for the things that I really care about. It just seems like such a toxic cycle. It doesn't seem like there's much positivity that comes from it. Even with Obama, who I felt like is such an outlier and sort of an interesting bridge to talk about between those two because, you know, obviously he he had sort of the moral authority with regards to his personal life, which George W. Bush did as well. Um, but you still don't have that. You still had such anger on the right and the left from feeling like they weren't getting what they wanted. I really, I just, I can't put my finger on what happens and why. Maybe it's just the problem is that we put so much in the basket of the presidency to begin with in our parties and on our country. But it just seems like, no, any way you slice it, whether they're perfect or whether they screw up, so much is sacrificed in the way that we support them. I was watching the State of the Commonwealth with Matt Bevan and thinking about how maybe all executive functions should be nonpartisan. Mm. Because we do put too much pressure on those positions and we do meld too much in terms of policy objectives with just good leadership characteristics. I mean, if you think about the past several elections, we have not had a short supply of candidates, especially on the Republican side. We've really had too many, right? It just turns the whole process into a circus. But we have had a shortage of good leaders. And I think in both parties, you had people lamenting. Now, I, I I say this with no disrespect to the people who are passionate Hillary Clinton supporters, and I do not want to take anything away from the enthusiasm that they felt. Broadly speaking, a lot of America has, through several elections now, said, is this the best we got? Mm-hmm. And that's on us and on the people running. I, I think everyone shares responsibility for that. But I wonder if part of that is not... The fact that when you look at the Clinton and, and George W. Bush presidencies, particularly the way that they happened at times of intense technological, economic and cultural change, people don't react well to change and intense media environments and a brand new media inter- industry that was really out there to say, here's what you should get from your president. You should Mm. get something from your president. You should get something from your congressman. And you didn't get it. Aren't you pissed off about that? I mean, we didn't make that up, right? That's been coming through our radio speakers for the past 20, 30 years in a way that it hadn't been before that. Well, I was also thinking this through the lens of the base. And, you know, as as a city commissioner, What I hear often from people, and I hear this from people saying it to me. I hear this from people on the left saying it to legislators on the right, which is you need to listen to your constituents and do what they want. It's almost like they want me to, like, take the tally, mark down how many phone numbers and how many people called, see who is highest and do what they want. Like, I hear that. And I think that's a thing people from the both sides want and have said. Um, But what's interesting is that's not really about the majority That's about who screams the loudest and who is most passionate. Now, I think that there is moral authority to be found in who's passionate. I don't think emotions are a bad thing. I think um, the emotions tied up in healthcare, for example, are indicative of the importance of the debate, of the stakes for so many citizens inside that debate. But that is such an interesting way 
and I think has always been the way that debates have been driven in the United States. And particularly when you think of something like gun control, which we've been talking about a lot, that it was it's the it's the, who is the passionate who's willing to sort of put the most dollars, put the most time and steer the debate. It's not really about how the majority of Americans feel. And you can see that inside the way people react to presidents and the way people steer party leaders. And I mean, right, maybe this is the back to the discussion we were having about Harvard. Parties are such a petri dish for that type of approach to politics. That is, I'm right. I feel most passionately about it. And therefore, you need to do what I want. But I don't know if we should blame the Petri dish. Like I said, like it does seem to be that this is this is the environment in which those voices gain control and those voices gain power. And you can see it acted out inside the presidency. And I think arguably because back to what we said about Donald Trump and the solar panels, it's the people who feel the strongest, who can, especially who can spend the most money, who exhibit the most influence. And you have presidents making truly terrible decisions, which let me be clear. I think George W. Bush did. But, you know, I don't know if I know the way a different way forward. Like, I don't know how to pull us out of that, how to say, you know, this is not the best approach, like to amplify the people on the edges of every issue or every party. And, I, I, you know, I'm a big Obama fan. I think he did a better job of this than most of saying, like, I am not your savior. This is not the approach we're going to take. Like, there is a way to center ourselves inside a perspective that is not driven by the loudest voices in the room. I think he was good at that. But then you come out of his presidency, two terms of his presidency, with an election that was just a nightmare. It was a nightmare. But again, that's just that's that's assuming that the president or the presidency is the biggest influence on our elections, which I don't think it is. But it is certainly an interesting sort of lens through which to see them. I was thinking about John McCain when you first talked about moral authority and wanting mm. to discuss it. I was as excited about John McCain as many people were about Barack Obama. Because I thought perhaps we would have a centrist Republican, uh, as the president. And, and then perhaps I could see, like, do the things that I believe about the country work in practice. Because I just felt like we hadn't had that, mm. you know, especially because I, you know, the Bush presidency went south in such a dramatic and, and sad and long lastingly consequential way. Mm. I hoped that John McCain would be an opportunity to change the direction of the party. And I was so excited about him. And for a brief moment when he chose Sarah Palin, I was excited about her because I thought, here's a governor. It's a woman. It's kind of a a, a new voice in the ticket. But then it became clear so rapidly that she was just manifestly unqualified And that sapped all the moral authority from the Republican argument that President Obama had not enough experience to take the executive office, Mm -hmm. right? You just immediately drained any credibility that you had on the importance of experience and the role of judgment and, and life experience going into that office. And then John McCain started to kind of go more to the right. Um, there were just a number of, of moments in that, in that election process 
that drained the hope that I had about John McCain's candidacy and really about whether the Republican Party is capable of of nominating a consistent moderate for the presidency and whether a moderate is capable of winning the office. What I hope we can do as a starting point to turn away from all this is to just learn from the past instead of relitigating the past. Right now, I think every discussion that involves Bill Clinton or George W. Bush or John McCain's candidacy or even President Obama's presidency, which is starting to feel like history, despite it not having been long ago, seems to center on scoring a point about today. Mm. Right. Or a point about moral authority as relative. We don't define moral authority by just the, the trust and respect and competence we see in individual leaders. It's, well, both parties are bad, but my party is way, way better. Mm-hmm. And I will grant you, I, I hate discussions about false equivalents. I will grant you that right now, the Republican Party is doing a worse job in Washington than the Democratic Party, and it's not even close. That is true by far. I will grant you that far-right media has had a more toxic effect on our environment and on our elections and our discourse than anything from the left by far. I believe those things. I also think that what, like, what do you, okay, now what? Right. Like you got that concession from a Republican. Now what? Right. How do we we still have to move forward from here? And I don't think that we can move forward until everyone kind of lays off the partisanship in this conversation as well. It's just so difficult because when I look back and I try to learn, not relitigate my own support. Now, I was very young. I mean, I voted in my first presidential election in 2000, so I was 18 with and went during the Gore v. Bush election, and so I'd grown up with Bill Clinton. I I was conservative as much as a high schooler can be, one thing or the other. I wrote a, a letter to Bill Clinton asking why he had murdered people. Oh, Lord save me. And I wrote an op-ed talking about how he didn't – he needed to resign because he had lied and all these things. And then I think I watched the sort of amazing turn my brain did once George W. Bush was president and Bill Clinton was an amazing president and everything needed our support. And that's the problem is that when you're talking about moral authority, when I look back over that, my – support of Hillary Clinton, uh, my feelings about George W. Bush, my feelings about Obama. It, it's that it's you're tr- you're trying to have a conversation on steady ground that is always shifting, right? Because we define moral authority only in comparison to the other party or the other person on the ticket. That is why we can't ever get anywhere because that's not a real standard. That's just uh well I'm not as bad as them. And if you feel passionately about abortion or about cultural battles or about anything, gun control, the Second Amendment, then there the other side's always worse. So you can justify anything, which we're seeing with Donald Trump. And I worry that, that that's just sort of the way the human brain is built. I'm not really sure. I, I see a way out of that because the stakes are high, not just because we're all partisan, but because those highly partisan issues are tied to deeply personal, deeply held beliefs. And I and I, I think the anger and the toxicity 
with which the the intersection of particularly the religious right and the evangelical movement with politics is that they stepped into the debate and they said, this isn't about just being better or worse than the other guy. We bring this outside objective moral authority to this to this debate. We have objective moral authority with which to base these decisions on for you so you don't have to feel like you're always shifting with the winds of your party and because the other guy's always worse. You know what I mean? And I think that time has shown that that wasn't really the case. That wasn't really the case. It wasn't about some sort of objective standard of moral authority. It was about the same thing it's always about, which is I want my side to win and I want to get what I want to get out of it. And I'm not really sure I see a way out of that. I mean, I think we can all individually try harder, but I wish I could see a path to some sort of structural changes within the party or within our elections themselves to protect us from that default reaction so many of us have when we're inside these limited, subjective moral debates. I don't think I believe in structural solutions to that. Um, something that became kind of a joke in my workplace among the people I worked most, most closely with is that a lot of times people would identify a problem and someone would say, well, there has to be a policy or a piece of software that can solve this for us. And like nine times out of 10, I would say, well, that's fine. Like, let's improve our policies. Let's improve our software. But please recognize that this is a people problem and it's not going to get solved exclusively by one of those things. Yeah. And I think that's what's happening right now. I think this is a people problem that is not going to be solved exclusively by some kind of structural protections. This is why I'm really interested in having a conversation about gun violence in schools that doesn't get into actual gun legislation. And I heard from one of our listeners, Lou, who said, I'm 100 percent not interested in that conversation. The problem is actually guns. The people who are so uh, intoxicated by what the NRA is peddling just don't have a place in this discussion anymore. What we need is more people who understand that we've got to do something about guns. And I get that. I totally get it. I also think, though, that with respect to the gun violence issue and almost all of our political issues, the passionate voices on both sides have so alienated people who are open to Mm -hmm. solutions and who Mm -hmm. care about finding solutions that we will never have anyone bringing all those things together. How do you get enough people interested in supporting sensible gun regulation without bringing some of those people out of the disenchanted and into the the place where they would be supportive of legislators from both parties seeking some gun regulations? You don't. You yeah. have we have to more people have to come into this process for any kind of reason to come back into this process. And they are simply not going to do that as long as they are disgusted on an individual level by the behavior of politicians and disgusted on a structural level by the conduct of the parties. And in that sense, the past few months have made us infinitely worse in trying to get there. Well, the only thing I would say, though, is that there does seem to be a rock bottom. There seems to be a level of disgust in which even those people will say, you know what? Enough is enough. And my disgust has grown so strongly that I am motivated to action. I think you see that with so many women running for office, with people of all different um, backgrounds running for office, people getting involved in um, advocacy work. So I do think there is a level 
maybe a silver lining to the Trump presidency generally, in which we just are so fed up that we can't take it anymore. And, you know, foot on the gas, reasonable people, because Mm -hmm. if we get through 2018 without having had some successes, then I think all of this will get even worse. People will get more disgusted. If, if you can't move the needle, I saw uh, our listener Debbie sent me an article about three moderate Republicans running in Texas, all women who are running to the left in primaries against Republicans, wow. which is like my dream, right? It is my dream to have people running to the left of the Thomas Massey's and Mitch McConnell's in Kentucky. And if they can't win in this circumstance, in this environment, we have a very serious problem, right? Mm-hmm. So we have to keep pushing in that direction. And when I say to the left, you guys, like, I don't mean I have, I have kind of gone back to referring to myself as a Republican because I was so struck during our conversation with Michael Weir about the effect of 40% of our country being unaffiliated. And about the fact that that means the the Democratic Party gets pushed further to the left and the Republican Party gets pushed further to the right. Mm -hmm. I think it is important that these two parties, I I think it's important right now more than ever that we insist, no, I am a Republican. I do believe in limited government. I do believe in some of the principles that I thought animated the party. The fact that we have people and leadership in the party not adhering to those principles right now means it's my responsibility to say so even louder not to run away from it. Because the truth is, me becoming an independent does nobody any good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's How much almost... more powerful for me to say, I'm a registered Republican, and in 2018, I didn't vote for a single Republican because I am disgusted, and I'm going to work for people who will reform this party. It's almost like we're having a moral battle in America about how who's louder, the people who are afraid or the people who are disgusted. Yeah, it's a sad place to be, but you're right. Yeah, that's well said. Speaking of being disgusted, the things that I think bring this home in the past week in the news. So we've learned that Steve Wynn has a history of, well, has had a number of allegations of a history of sexual predatory, sexual predatory behavior. Uh, Steve Wynn is, has been the chair of the RNC Finance Committee, and the reaction from Republicans on this has been so weak that it makes me livid. Hmm. There have been a number of stories coming out about the Mueller investigation, reports that President Trump ordered Don McGahn, the White House counsel, to fire Robert Mueller um, earlier in the summer, that McGahn said that he would resign if Trump insisted on him doing that, that Trump backed down, that Republicans in Congress are setting their sights on uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein in connection with surveillance of Carter Page. It's interesting to me, interesting again is the word that I'm using today to avoid some vulgarity in our discussion, that Republicans have gotten reports about ongoing surveillance about Carter Page and have turned that into a problem with the Justice Department instead of a problem with the Trump organization. Mm -hmm. But that is what they are doing. And then on the world stage, you still have whole countries, you know, that remark resounding around the world. When you think about America's moral standing in the world. Under the Trump presidency, there are serious concerns. And so, again, every headline that I look at takes me back to, are we willing to do something about this or not? Because I think what what makes this so clear to me that's different 
than the Clinton years and the Bush years. We know at this moment in time that this is not right. Yeah, so true. Well, I should also say that there is reporting that Hillary Clinton knew during the 2008 presidential election that um, one of her campaign advisors was engaged in sexual harassment. There was an investigation. They sort of docked his pay. They moved the woman that he had been harassing to another department. But then he was allowed to stay. He was given another position later on. It's incredibly discouraging. I'm very disappointed. I didn't have any personal interactions with this man and never heard any of the, any of this when I worked for her in 2007. But um, the the decision making after the campaign manager said we should he should have to go to keep him on and then to move him around. Oh, so discouraging, so discouraging and upsetting. Yeah, I think it's a testament to how deeply embedded these problems are. Mm hmm. Well, I loved this quote from Gandhi that I thought was an interesting way to wrap this up. He said, moral authority is never retained by any attempt to hold on to it. It comes without seeking and is retained without effort. And to me, that just speaks to the fact that being a good person is not a strategy. Mm -hmm. And I think that our political parties and our politicians, for the most part, are so engaged in strategy right now that we're losing sight of the fact that you just need to be a good person in all of your decisions. You know, you just need to do the right thing. And I know that sounds trite. And here's what makes it not trite. As voters, we need to reward people who are trying to do the right thing. And we need to come out in support of those people, even when they don't match us on every single issue. We need to stand up for the people who are trying to hold on to some moral authority in Washington, D.C., because Mm -hmm. I think it is so difficult to do that. So true. So next up, we are going to talk about what's on our minds outside politics. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin. I take a probiotic. And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered showerhead comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, 
has revolutionized the filtered showerhead. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. What are you thinking about beyond politics right now, Sarah? I'm thinking about teeth grinding and teeth clenching at night. Do you grind or clench your teeth at night? I clench, yes. And I've okay. just gotten a bite guard for this. Let's. I want to talk about this. I'm going to put a poll on our social media pages. I want to hear from our listeners. I was in a yoga class. The yoga teacher told me she clenches at night. Um, I have another friend who is like the picture of peace. I feel like being around her is meditating. She clenches her teeth at night. What is happening? Why is everyone clenching their teeth at night? I think we need to talk about this as a nation. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I'm a yoga teacher and I clench my teeth at night. And I feel like part of me feels like I'm failing because of that, because I spend a lot of time thinking about taking all the effort out of muscles that don't need to be exercising effort. Right. Um, but, you know, your your subconscious gets to you, right? You can't, you can't totally get rid of all of that. I just think we're stressed. I mean, you and I have been talking a lot off, off the podcast lately about stress and pressure. And I think that all of us are immersed in that no matter what we're doing or what the circumstances of our lives are. I think we are addicted to feeling stressed and a sense of pressure. Well, I just think this is unacceptable. We should all not be clenching our jaws while we sleep every night. Like, I don't know. I think that it's, this is a problem. Now, I did have a yoga teacher tell me that you should sit with your legs up the wall for 10 minutes before you go to bed. This is a posture yoga teacher, and I asked her about this, and she said, try that. And I've been trying it, and I have noticed a difference. And the other yoga teacher said that this is because there's a nerve that's stimulated, and it's it's basically instead of having fight or flight, which this the constant sort of modern anxiety and stress we're under all the time, I think um, triggers so constantly this tell because when you put your leg up the legs up the wall and relax and and 
that nerve gets stimulated, it's telling your body, like, it's relaxation time. You're not under any threat. It's relaxation time. Um, and I'm really trying to meditate more. I really, I don't want to be, I don't want to clench my teeth at night. I just, I don't. First of all, I have, feel like a death grip on my jaws and my temples, and it's exhausting, and I hate it, and it hurts. And I don't want to have to wear a mouth guard, and I want to be able to deal with subconsciously whatever is going on. Is this just the reality of modern life? Because it is. I'm about to become Amish. I just don't think I should be. We should all be clenching our teeth when we sleep every night. I feel very passionately about this. One thing about legs up the wall that I want to say, what you said is absolutely true for a lot of people. There are people who find that position very energizing. Mm. So inversions affect different people in different ways. This is my point. So if you try putting your legs up the wall before bed and you find that you cannot go to sleep, Another way to take your nervous system out of that fight or flight mentality into rest and digest is to just try nasal breathing. So in through your nose, out through your nose and do it in a way where you can sort of hear your breathing as you do it. If you think about what it feels like to um, make a breath that fogs up a mirror, you know, that warm breath that comes from the back of your throat, do that thing with your mouth closed. And that'll also tell your nervous system that it's time to calm down. See, I used to breathe through my nose at night, but now through using the mouth guard, and now I feel like I have to sort of keep my mouth open because if I close it to breathe through my nose, I start clenching. Oh, yeah. So listeners, if you have this problem, first of all, I want to hear how common this is. And second of all, if you have some strategies um, that have worked beyond a mouth guard, because I'm just not feeling the mouth guard anymore, let me know. Well, since you went down the sleep path, I will I will shift what I was going to talk about and say that Sarah and I recently discovered that we share a recurring dream. I would also like to know how common this is. Ugh. So I've had recurring dreams my entire life. As a very young child, I started having dreams that I had over and over and over again, eerily similar details. I had some very kind of creepy dreams as a young child all the time. So this yeah. has been a pattern for me. About the past year, my main recurring dream has been that I am in a house, and sometimes it's the house that I own and live in now. Sometimes it's a house that, in my dream, I've just purchased. But I'm in a house that is mine, and I discover a new room in the house that I did not know is there. And it's always elaborately decorated. It is always a style that is 100% not me. Like I'll walk into this art deco room, right? Or I'll walk into a room that is um, very like early 19th century, but it's always really over the top. I'm kind of a minimalist in the way that I set my house up and it's, I'm, I'm always going into a space. that's like, boom, all kinds of stuff. So I was talking with um, my therapist about this and he was like, Beth, hello, you are the house. This is just about you discovering new parts of yourself and how important that is to you and how you know that you have all this untapped creativity and whatever in you. And I mean, he was like, this is the most boring recurring dream ever, which was fine. But I thought it was really interesting. And I was telling Sarah when we talked about this and I realized that she had this dream too, that it creates this really strong emotion in me when I have that dream that I'm not sure that we have an English word for. It's kind of a mixture of like sadness and excitement and confusion and surprise and uh, feeling some sense of being tempted towards something. So anyway, I wonder if that's the, how it affects you emotionally too, Sarah. I had this dream a ton when I lived in my old house. Um, I still have it every once in a while, but it was really, really regular. And the craziest thing, I already told Beth the story. 
when I bought my new house, I'd already bought it. And my friend and I were walking through it. And she was like, what's this? And I was bemoaning that I was going to have to store my Christmas decorations in the garage. And she found this little latch and pulled it open. And it was additional room. We call it the room of the requirement now. Like a little attic storage room that fits all my Christmas stuff decorations like perfectly. It's a little bit amazing. It was like my dream come to life. And I was telling everyone this. And I'm like, don't you have that dream? And a lot of people looked at me like I was crazy. They're like, no, I've never had that dream. (laughs) But I had my friend Melissa was like, yes, oh, my God, I have that dream all the time. And... Yeah, it's, I have it. I mean, I had it really regularly for a while. And I think I have it in during periods of transition in particular when I look back and kind of see a pattern. Um, I was dreaming that when I was transitioning to a new role and maybe that's what that was about. Like you're about to find this other area of life or other side of yourself. I would like to hear how common it is, though. Well, speaking of transitioning to a new role, people who have listened to us for a while know that I left my job at the end of the year to focus on fancy politics and to build a coaching practice. And I have a class coming out about boundaries in February. It's a four-week online class. Uh, You'll get a podcast and a weekly email from me. And the deadline to register for that is this week. So please jump in. If you would like to be part of that class, you can do that at bestsilvers.com. And also I'm thinking about, because I have had so many people reach out to me about scholarships for my signature program, which is a three month program. I'm thinking about putting together sort of a mini version of that, that is at a lower price point, but that would allow more people access to work with me and to get some of the tools that I use. So stay tuned for more on that, but I am loving doing this work. It's really been awesome. You can also join us tomorrow on our new um, podcast, the nuanced life. We are going to be discussing class and money in the next few weeks. Um, we, cause I said that I often feel like people don't talk about sex, nutrition, or money a lot. Those are like the three things they don't cover with their kids. So we've covered nutrition and sex in the last episode. We're going to try to move on to money in this week's episode. So please join us over at the nuanced life. And until then, keep it nuanced y'all. Thank you so much to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, Leslie, Sabrina, and George. You can join us on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Pantsuit Politics and on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic, no S. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com or reviews are always helpful and you can leave one through the Apple Podcast app. Thank you to Dante Lima, the composer of our Pantsuit Politics theme music. 